Well, you can open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we will complete what we began last week, looking at the command here to love one another earnestly. I think it would be good for us once again to read the entire chapter, 1 Peter 1, verse 1 through 25. Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls for, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, 
Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Last week we looked at the work of the gospel in our lives to prepare us to love. The gospel is like a vehicle assembly line. The gospel prepares us to love and there is the finished product sitting prepared now to love. The gospel purifies our souls. It begets us again with God's own nature within us. And now we are prepared to love. And today we're going to answer two questions. First of all, what is the shape of that love? If you saw the car in motion, where would it go? What would it do? And the second thing we will answer is, what is the fuel that is required to move these cars down the road of love. And what we will see in 1 Peter 1 is going to, Lord willing, fill our tanks with fuel and give us direction so that we may love one another earnestly. What is the shape of Christian love? What does it look like? There's many things we could look at in the scriptures, but in the book of 1 Peter, I want to call your attention to two passages. We'll look at the one that we looked at last week, chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. And then we will look at chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. And the first thing I want you to see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, is that this love is brotherly. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Every Christian has the responsibility to love other believers that God has placed him alongside of in his church and to love them as his own family. We are part of a new family. God the Father has brought us all to life and so we are all his children. So we are to love one another with brotherly love. But secondly, in verse 22, notice that we are to love one another. This love is to be mutual. It is to go both ways. That means, first of all, that we all have the responsibility to engage in this. No one can simply be a receiver of love. We all are to love. But that also means that we all are to be receivers of love. We must manifest an appropriate humility that lets other people love and serve me. That does require humility. And the third thing that we see in this passage about this love is actually what we read at the beginning of chapter 2. In light of what God has done to prepare us, 
in verses 22 through 25, to love one another earnestly. So, verse, chapter 2, verse 1, so put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. These things in chapter 2, verse 1, work against the love that Peter is commanding of us. And there's three categories of them in chapter 2, verse 1. And the categories are based on the word all. The first thing we are to put off is all malice. Malice is doing another person wrong on purpose. It's going out of your way to hurt another person. And Romans 13.10 says, Love does no wrong to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. I'm not sure that malice would be a particular temptation to us. But the closer we get to one another, the more opportunity there is to harm one another, both unintentionally and intentionally. And normally, intentional harm, I'm hurting you on purpose, is a response to being hurt unintentionally. Someone does something that I don't like, and I respond by doing them wrong. And Peter says, put that away. Because you have been born again to love. The second category here is all deceit, hypocrisy, and envy. These three go together as a category. And each one of these vices is focused on my own well-being and advantage. Peter is saying, put away anything in your life that works for its own well-being and advantage, first of all. Deceit. Crafting your words or actions to gain the advantage over someone else. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is play acting. It's putting on a show that's false. It's pretending. We never generally pretend to be worse off than other people. We generally pretend to be better than other people portraying myself as better, superior than another person. And that cannot exist in a community of love, Peter says. We all are on the same level, and we must act like it. And thirdly, we are to put off envy. Envy is wishing that things were better for me than they are for another. It's wishing that I could have the better circumstances than another has. It's wishing that I could get a little ahead of them, or maybe a lot ahead of them. All three of these, we could sum up under the word, we have malice, and these three, I think, talk to us about self-service. Not only are we not to do intentional wrong to another, we are not even to serve ourselves, first of all. And the third category that, Paul, that Peter gives us is all slander. Slander is using your words to make light of or to belittle another, to put them down. Now these words, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, describe the world out there in general quite well. That's how it works. Doing one another evil. Using your words to put another person down to exalt yourself. All unbelievers are about seeking what is best for me, doing whatever is necessary for me to obtain everything that I want. We live our lives for ourselves. 
And some communities go so far as to make sure that their pursuit of themselves just doesn't, it's okay to pursue yourself as long as you don't damage anybody else. As long as you're kind to other people, you can still be first. But the Christian community is supposed to be different. It's to be going about seeking, first of all, to promote the well-being of others. Promoting my own well-being secondarily at best. Listen to 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. By this we know love, that's what we're being commanded to do here. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. So who was in the dominant position there? Us or Christ? He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. My life is not for me, it's for the brothers. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The Christian community is to be a community of love. This is what it looks like. The second passage in 1 Peter that shows us what this road of love is to look like is in 1 Peter chapter 4. We read in 1 Peter 1, love one another earnestly. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. It's actually a nearly identical phrase to chapter 1, verse 22. But what's interesting here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, is that the command to keep loving one another earnestly is the main command, and then there are three commands underneath it that tell us what does it mean to love one another earnestly. Here are the three commands. Chapter 4, verse 8, covering a multitude of sins. That's what love does. Love one another earnestly, so cover a multitude of sins. Chapter 4, verse 9, show hospitality to one another. That's what love does. It shows hospitality to one another without grumbling. And chapter 4, verse 10, serve one another with the gifts that God has given you. That's what love does. It serves one another with the gifts that God has given. So let's take each of those in turn. Chapter 4, verse 8, love covers a multitude of sins. Not one or two, but a whole bunch. What is sin? If someone sins against you, that costs you something. You lose when someone sins against you. Sin steals something from another person. And that loss has got to be covered. Somebody has to pay. Somebody has to shoulder the burden of that loss. And love covers over those sins. Not in the sense of dismissing them. Well, it's just a little sin. Don't worry about it. Love doesn't cover over sins in the sense of dismissing them as though they're not important. Love covers over sins in the sense that it bears on itself the loss that another person's sin has produced. Love goes a long way, bearing the weight of the loss upon itself. It covers a multitude of sins. And this then is the concept of forgiveness. Forgiveness is not pretending like a sin never occurred. Rather, forgiveness is releasing the offender from the burden and responsibility of paying for the offense. It's choosing to bear the loss on oneself rather than making him pay for what he did. It's subtracting from my own account 
to cover the loss that another person has incurred towards me. So love covers a multitude of sins. Secondly, love shows hospitality without grumbling. Chapter 4, verse 9. This involves devoting my time and my resources to care for others in the church. It means the needs of others are my responsibility. And it costs me to care for them. Christian love requires time that you devote to other Christians. It encourages you to spend your resources to encourage them, to listen to them, to pray for them, to study the scriptures together with them. Love means I spend my time and resources on others, not on myself. It means the needs of others have a legitimate claim upon my resources. I'm indebted to them. You could almost add the entire Christian church's names to my bank account, to my allotment of time, to my resources. I owe it to them. I am indebted to other Christians and I have the opportunity to care for them and their needs to show hospitality when the situation demands it. And Peter says, we are to do this without grumbling and complaining. We are to do this without complaining about the burden that other people are to us. We are to do this without complaining about the loss. And thirdly, Christian love serves one another in divine strength. And that means doing big things for others. Christian love isn't about doing little things for others. It is about serving them in the strength that only God can supply. So how big of a thing is that? If it takes God's strength to serve them, it must not be a little thing. It must be a big thing that I'm doing for them. Christian love means using the gifts that God has given me for the good of others. Chapter 4, verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve others, one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. We can think of this broadly in the sense that everything I have is a gift from God. And therefore, I'm to use everything that He has given me to serve others. It's not given to me by God, first of all, to be used on myself. My time is not a gift from God for myself. My resources are not a gift of God to be used, first of all, on myself. No gift is ever given for my own edification. More specifically, though, in this passage, it means that my spiritual gifts are to be used for the good of the Christian community. Depriving the community of the Spirit's gifts that He's given to me for their good is not love. And exercising these spiritual gifts towards others is one of the means whereby they receive God's grace. You are a steward of God's varied grace. What does that mean? It means the resources you have are gifts of God to you. They are God's grace to you that you have X amount of money or X amount of time. That is God's gift to you so that you can be a steward of it and give it to others. How do we receive God's grace? Through other Christians who love and sacrifice what God has given to them for me. Think with me about the un unbelieving world. I'm sorry. In this way then, we become channels of God's grace to other believers. And this kind of love will cost you dearly. 
it will take everything you have. Think with me about the unbelieving world out there. Unbelievers don't love like this. Why not? Because it costs a lot. Acting this way, if, if, if I love like this today, you know what that's going to mean for me tomorrow? I'll be further behind. I will be less because I've given up my resources to other people. Unbelievers who are constantly trying to get ahead, to have more for themselves, cannot love like this because of the cost. I want to point out, and I just want you to think with me now as we start moving towards the fuel that's going to push this kind of love forward. I want you to think for a minute about why unbelievers do what they do. Why do they get up and go to work in the morning? Why do they choose as they do as to how they're going to spend their days and their time? Unbelievers, all of us actually, choose what we choose with an eye on the future. I go to work today because I want to have more money tomorrow. I decide that I will spend my day in this way because I would like to have that time for myself. Everything that we do today, we do with a view to tomorrow. In fact, we all act with the future in view. We're constantly evaluating whether what I'm doing today will enhance my future tomorrow. Will I be in a better place tomorrow? What can I do to get in a better place tomorrow? We spend our todays trying to bring about a better tomorrow. And if we find an opportunity that will enhance my life tomorrow, I'll take it today. If we find someone who gets in the way of my plans for tomorrow, well, I will fight against them today to get where I want to go tomorrow. And that means that every action we undertake today, we always undertake it in hope of tomorrow. And thus, it is hope that drives the choices we make as to how we will spend our resources. Hope is what drives our choices every day of our lives. We will continue on a course of action as long as we are convinced that it will bring about a better tomorrow for me. We are all creatures then who are driven by hope. And to an unbeliever, the course of Christian love sounds reckless. It sounds foolish. It sounds like a path of loss. You know I'll be in a worse position tomorrow if I love today? It sounds like a path of cost and sacrifice, and it is. Love costs. It costs the Son of God his life. What would prompt a Christian to love so recklessly and at such a loss to himself? <coughs> what would prompt him to abandon all and to love earnestly all the way to the end? What drives such a love? What would fuel such a love and keep it burning bright for the duration? What fuel does God give us to obey the command of love, to love one another earnestly all the way to the end? And the answer in 1 Peter 1 is one word. It is the word hope. Hope is the fuel of Christian love. What is hope? Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Hope is a confident expectation of something good in the future. The hope that we see in verse 3 is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Question for you. Whatever it is that we are hoping for that is good, we derive that hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So how certain is the thing for which we hope? As certain as the resurrection of Christ. How certain is that? Very certain that he rose up from the dead. Every believer to be a believer must believe that. It is the foundation of everything. Through that foundation, we have hope. So what is hope? How confident is hope? Is it a, well, I hope that will happen tomorrow. It is a confidence of something that is coming in the future that is good. It is confidence that is as certain as the power of God. We are confident that we will receive something good in the future. That God will give us more grace in the future. And notice verse 4. This is a hope... We've been begotten, born again to a living hope, a hope of, verse 4, an inheritance. How certain are you that you will receive that inheritance? Well, it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, it's reserved in heaven for you. And you too, verse 6, verse 5, are being kept by God's power. God's power keeping the inheritance, God's power keeping you, God's power to bring you together. How certain is that hope of an inheritance? It is certain. It is certain that one day God will give you the gift of an inheritance. And so Christian hope is faith in future grace. Christian hope is faith in future grace. I'm not hoping for gifts that I've already received. My hope is focused on future grace. And I reach out and take hold of that future grace in faith in God's promises that it will be mine. And when those promises ignite in me a confidence that it will be mine, that is called hope. And hope is confidence produced by faith in the promises of God that he will do me good and not evil tomorrow. And that hope alters our conduct. Imagine a poor man walking down the street. He lives in a cardboard box under a bridge. He lives amongst a whole community of poor people. And every day he walks this road looking for shiny coins that others have dropped. But not today. Today he's walking the road because he's on his way to the bank to inherit a billion dollars. But he's still looking for shiny pennies today on his way to the bank. How odd. He's on his way to inherit a fortune. If he were to set his hope completely on the fortune that was to be his, it would change his conduct as he walks along the road. He would stop looking for pennies. 
He would begin to notice the hungry eyes and scrawny hands of other beggars around him. He would begin to give away everything that he has to them with his hope set firmly upon his future inheritance. Hope alters our conduct today. And this is what Peter is getting at in this entire chapter. Look with me at verse 13. Verses 3 through 12, he has spoken to us about this salvation that will be ours that we hope for. Verse 13, Therefore, in light of all that God has done to prepare salvation, in light of His election, in light of His raising of Christ from the dead, in light of His preparing an inheritance, in light of all that He has done to preserve you and will yet do to preserve you, in light of all the promises that He has made to you through the prophets, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does that mean to set my hope fully on the grace that will be brought to me at the revelation of Jesus Christ? He gives us three commands that tell us what that looks like. Chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, be holy like your Father in heaven is holy. Chapter 1, verse 17. If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially, conduct yourselves with fear during your time upon earth. And chapter 1, verse 22. Having been begotten again, born again, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Christians who hope are holy as God is holy. Christians who set their hope fully upon the grace that will be theirs at the revelation of Jesus Christ conduct themselves now in fear. And Christians who hope on the future grace that will be theirs at the, resurrection of Jesus, at the return of Jesus Christ love earnestly from a pure heart. Take away the hope, the holiness will fade. Take away the hope, the conduct in fear will fade. And take away the hope, and the love will fade. Your love will only be earnest if you will set your gaze, your hope, upon the future grace that will be yours at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, how does hope fuel love today? And that's the second point that we'll look at here under the fuel of Christian love. What is hope? We've looked at that. How does hope fuel love? I want you to notice several things about 1 Peter chapter 1 before we can answer that question. Okay? The first thing I want you to notice is in verse 3, how did we come to possess this hope? Not every person has hope of a future inheritance. How did we come to be hopers? And the answer in verse 23 is that we were, be verse 3, is that we were begotten again. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be begotten again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What's the picture here? The picture is of a man who has no children. They don't exist. And then the man suddenly has a child. Because he has begotten him. He has fathered a child. He has given him life. God too has begotten us. Not in the sense of raising us from the dead, but in the sense of bringing us into being as his children. He has fathered us in the same way that a man fathers a child. And that's why Peter gives praise to God in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father 
because he is a father, first of our Lord Jesus Christ, but also of us. He has begotten us again to a living hope. In other words, when we first came to be, when we first arrived in this world, as a child arrives in this world to the work of a father, when we first came to be, when our eyes first fluttered open, what was our state? Begotten in hope. We had hope. We were begotten again to a living hope. Hope of an inheritance. Why? Because we were begotten by a father who has an inheritance to pass along to us. And if we are the children of that father, we have hope of receiving the inheritance. We're begotten to be God's heirs. Heirs of all that is God's. So what is God's? You are an heir of all that is God's. You shall inherit it all in Christ. Heirs of all things. Tiny infants. Heirs of everything in this world by God's work to beget us again as a father. And this idea of inheritance and fathers and sons is huge in 1 Peter 1. Let me show it to you. We noticed verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has begotten us again, that's what fathers do for sons, to an inheritance, that's what fathers pass along to their sons. But look at verse 14. Verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be yours. What does that mean? It means as obedient children, be holy like God in heaven is holy. Obedience is something that a child renders to a father. And we are called God's obedient children. Notice verse 2. We were chosen by God for obedience chosen by God begotten by him to a living hope set your hope firmly on the grace that will be yours and live as obedient children notice verse 17 set your hope verse 13 on the grace that will be yours if you call on him as father the one who judges impartially conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were not ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 20. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. In verse 1 and 2. So were you by God the Father. Chapter 1, verse 22, having purified your souls for a sincere brotherly love. Chapter 1, verse 23, you have been begotten again by a father's seed, the seed of God himself that remains in you. You were fathered by seed. Chapter 1, verse, oh sorry, chapter 2, verse I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 23, we were begotten, same word as chapter 1, verse 3. That's what a father does. He begets, we were begotten of imperishable seed. In chapter 2, verse 2, we are newborn infants. What's the picture that Peter's painting for us? 
the picture is this. We used to have fathers. There were many of them. And from those fathers, we had an inheritance. Futile, empty ways. We were going about life, and the end of it was a black hole. There was nothing at the end for us. And then God comes on the scene, and he fathers us again. He begets us again. And now we are heirs of God. What would you have inherited from your forefathers living in sin? Any inheritance? Nothing. Now we have been fathered again by God. We are heirs of God and all that he possesses. We are alive to a living hope. All because, chapter 1, verse 3, of God's great mercy. Why do we have this hope? Because of God's mercy. Because he has fathered us again. And this is why Peter says in verse 13, Therefore, in light of God's work, to bring you to life, to give you a hope of an inheritance. Therefore, you must fix your hope firmly on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus appears. The grace that is to be ours, we will receive in the future. And it is to be ours because God has fathered us as his children and given us hope of future grace. So fix your hope upon that grace, Peter says, that is coming to you. And live like you are an heir of this Father. How? As obedient children, be holy. If you call the one who impartially judges all Father, then conduct yourself in fear. And if you have been begotten again by this God through an imperishable seed, then love your brothers in the family earnestly. This is Peter's point. This family theme then is the foundation of the three ways, verse 14, 17, and 23. It is the foundation of the three ways that we are to live as hope-possessing children of God. So how does this hope then of verse 13 fuel our love in verse 23. Set your hope fully and love. There's two ways that hope fuels love in 1 Peter 1. First, it directs us to the right objects of our love. And secondly, it sets us free to love. First of all, hope fuels love by directing the objects of our love. Who are we to love? Answer? Look at your hope. Set your hope firmly on the grace that will be yours, and you will know who you are to love. Hope directs us to the right objects of our love. Who are we to hope? Answer, our fellow heirs. It's a very curious passage in 1 Peter chapter 3. Turn over and read verse 7 with me. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Peter has just finished in verses 1 through 6, telling wives that they are to be subject to their husbands. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Paul goes further and says, husbands, love your wives. Peter doesn't say love your wives. He says, 
dwell with them in an understanding way. And dwelling with them in an understanding way and loving are very, very closely related to one another. Why love them? Because they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Peter tells husbands to love their wives because of their inheritance, of future grace that they hope for. So chapter 1, verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The coming of that grace then directs who you are to love. Love your wives as fellow heirs of the grace that is coming to you. You are to love your wife because she too is an heir of the grace of life. And that's why Peter says what he does in chapter 1 verse 22. We are to love one another earnestly. Chapter 3, love your wife. She is an heir of the grace of life. Chapter 1, love all the brothers because they too are heirs of the grace of life. Fix your hope upon the grace that will come to you at the revelation of Christ and it will inform you as to who you are to love. In both, it must, in both chapter 1 and chapter 3, it means we must love our fellow heirs. Why? Why must you love your fellow heirs of the grace of life? Why must we not seek to get ahead of the other? To use our resources for our own well-being so that we can get ahead. Why must we not put one another down? Why must we sacrifice everything we have for one another? And the answer is because God has. God will bestow upon your brothers and sisters here, He will bestow upon them the world. He's going to give them His grace when Jesus appears, and you too must, as a good steward of the manifold grace of God. He has given a little bit of that future grace to you now to channel to them. And so as a good steward of God's manifold grace, serve one another and love earnestly to the end. Use the grace that God has given you to serve one another today. All that you have is not your own. What God has given to you, give it to others. It is the first installment of their future inheritance and God has chosen to bestow it upon them through you. And He will complete the job that you begin when Christ appears in glory. So who must you love? One another. Why? Because God does. They are the objects of His mercy and love. So be sons of your Father in heaven and love His dear children, the ones whom you live alongside of in the church. So hope fuels love by directing the objects of our love. Secondly, hope releases us to love earnestly. Look at chapter 1 again, verse 3. God has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead begotten again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 1, verse 23. You have been begotten again through the living and abiding Word of God. Resurrection or living and abiding Word of God? How were we begotten again? Resurrection, living and abiding Word of God. Which is it? The Word of God or the resurrection? And the answer is it's both. The Word of God in verse 25, by which we have been begotten again, is the good news. It's the gospel. The cornerstone of the gospel is the resurrection. The resurrection is part of the Word of God 
that has been proclaimed to you through which you have been born again. And so Peter can say you were born again through the resurrection. You can't have good news proclaimed without a resurrection to proclaim. And you can't have a resurrection that is good news unless it is proclaimed. It would not be good news if it were kept a secret. But when the resurrection is proclaimed, what happens? Sinners hear. They hear the proclamation. And through God's word, God begets them again to a living hope. They come alive with God's own seed in them. They come alive by the proclamation of the good news of the resurrection. The news of the resurrection, chapter 1, verse 3, fills believers with hope. In other words, think about a man preaching the gospel. And at some point, his proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ brings a sinner to life. But he's not done with his sermon. And the sinner, the first thing that he hears in coming to life is the news of the resurrection. And that fills him with hope. God begets us again through the resurrection to a living hope. In other words, God not only brings us to life, He brings us to new life, a certain kind of life. It's a new life of hope. Through the proclamation of Christ's resurrection, we are begotten again to a new life. But the proclamation of Christ's resurrection not only is the tool for producing that life, it's also the tool for producing a great hope in us as we come to new life. And thus we come into being by the proclamation of the resurrection. And the first thing that we hear as we blink open our eyes in this new family is the news of a coming resurrection that we will share in because of Christ's past resurrection. And that means we have hope. And this hope sets us free to love with reckless abandon. It sets us free to love one another earnestly to the end. How? How does this hope set us free to love? And the answer is because it tells us that this life is not all there is. You don't have to collect all the shiny pennies. You can now. You're on your way to inherit the world. Future grace awaits us. We are waiting for grace. We are waiting for future grace. Yes, we experience God's grace now, but Christians are not fundamentally people who experience God's grace today. The grace of God that you have experienced to this point in your life is nothing compared to what you will receive on that day. We are not fundamentally experiencers of God's grace. Christians are not fundamentally those who live a different life. They're not fundamentally those who experience God's grace in this life. They are fundamentally hopers in future grace to be received by faith at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What we have received to, of God's grace today is nearly nothing compared to what will be ours on that day. We are destined for glory. And let me show you this as we finish up here. We have been begotten again to this hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What followed Christ's resurrection? Sacrifice? Resurrection. What came next? Verse 21. Through him you are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. 
Why did God do it that way? So that your faith and hope are in God. Verse 21. Love costs. It costs dearly. It cost Christ his life. But God raised him up and gave him glory. He's begotten us again to a living hope. He raised up Christ so that we would hope in God. The one who raised up Christ and gave him glory. So fix your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revealing of Jesus Christ. He will appear in glory because God has done it. He has raised him up to glory. And you will receive such grace from God on that day that you too will be raised up to inherit with him glory, to inherit all that he has. Hope in God who raises the dead. He has begotten you again to that kind of hope. This life is not all there is. So stop picking up the shiny pennies. Stop spending all of your life for yourself. Look around. Become preoccupied with others, with their interests, their needs, their lives, because you are on your way to inherit the world. Give away all that you can now. How can you? Such a life is costly. Love costs, but God repays after the resurrection. And Jesus Christ proves that to us. And this is what Peter means then. Fix your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you when God raises the dead and gives them glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's begotten you again to that hope. So fix your gaze upon the grace that will be yours and love earnestly from a pure heart. The more fully you set your hope on that future grace, the more earnest will be your love for your brothers now. The lost strive all of their lives to get all they can in this life because they have no hope. They have no hope of anything beyond this world, so it's whoever can get the most toys before he dies that wins. They have no hope of receiving glory. They have no hope of any inheritance except what they can earn for themselves now. If they don't strive and fight for themselves now, who will? But you, you have hope of future grace. Grace brought to you at the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You were begotten again to such a hope, so love earnestly as sons of God. You don't have to get it all now. It will be yours by grace when Jesus comes. And this lets us love with reckless abandon. This is how we may love to the end, till the grace we hope for becomes ours. Such hope will carry us through all the way to the end. Christians believe in the resurrection, and that means that this kind of love is uniquely Christian. That means that this life is not all that there is, and for those who have loved as Christ loved, there will be glory. And so an appropriate Christian love is not careful and guarded. It is firmly grounded in resurrection hope. It is centered on the gospel. It loves with every expectation of resurrection and glory to follow because of Christ Jesus. Now, I would like to take five more minutes and answer this question. How do we fix our hope firmly on the grace that will be ours? If this is the effect, loving earnestly, how do we fix our gaze, our hope upon this future grace? What does that look like? And the answer is given to us in verse 13 with two words, prepare and be sober-minded. Therefore, 
We could read it this way. By preparing your minds for action and by being sober-minded, that's how you set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want to observe, first of all, that preparing and being sober-minded both deal with the mind. Prepare your minds. Be sober-minded. Apparently, hope begins in the mind. What is going on in your mind? Well, the answer is thoughts. That's what goes through your minds. Analysis. The pursuit of the mind to understand, to grasp hold of truth. The mind is not primarily an experiencer. The mind is primarily an understander and a knower. That's what we use our minds for. And so, prepare your minds for action. What action? Love. What does that mean to prepare your mind? It means to get your mind in gear regarding this hope. You can go and look at Romans chapter 15, but hope is stimulated through the truth of God's Word. And that truth is pondered and understood and analyzed and grasped by the mind. Switch off your mind and simply seek for an experience in the Christian life and you will have no hope beyond the moment of the experience. But if you will open up your Bible and ponder it deeply, engage your mind, you will be preparing your mind, setting it upon this future hope. And the result will be that you will love. The second thing that Peter tells us here is we ought to be, we must be sober-minded. This too has to do with the mind. And I think Peter is setting, for us, setting before us here two options of what we can do with our mind. One of them is prepare it. Think deeply upon the truth, the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Contemplate the resurrection. Contemplate the inheritance. Contemplate God's foreknowledge. Contemplate God's work to choose you in Christ. Contemplate all of these things. Turn them over and over and over and over in your mind until they ignite hope. But the second thing, the opposite of that is that we maintain a sobriety of mind, sober-minded. There's a lot of things that you can fill your mind with that numb your mind just as alcohol numbs the senses. And if you do that, your hope will die. Avoid, then, the mind-numbing and heart-intoxicating influences of this life. Constantly connecting with this world will destroy your hope of a future world. And I'm not talking here about all the bad things in life. I'm actually talking here, and I think Peter has in mind all the good things in life. Things that we might set our minds upon that might become really important to us in this world and destroy our hope of a future world. They might satisfy all of our cravings in this world and destroy our hope that's set upon the grace that will fulfill all of our desires and needs in that one, the one to come. A career, filling your mind constantly with the news, a hobby, some exciting outing, Gardening, coin collecting, anything that connects you to this earth and grabs your heart that defines you as an earthling. I do what people in this life do who don't have a hope. 
I throw all of my energy into earthling sorts of things. And Peter says, one of the reasons future grace does not capture our attentions is because we are so attached to this world. Not to bad stuff, to really good stuff, but stuff that is part of this world. The shiny pennies on the ground. We are journeying to another world where an inheritance of all things that are God's await us. So leave the shiny pennies on the ground. And so together this year, let's prepare our minds for action and be sober and set our hope fully on the grace that will be ours when Jesus is revealed. And as a result, let us love one another earnestly. Lord God, you have set up salvation in such a way that we who call ourselves your children, there are immense responsibilities upon us to love our brothers. And not only does the gospel define who we are to love, it also gives us the ability to love. It motivates and fuels our love. And so, Lord, the Lord's table here will depict that for us once again. We who are in Christ will partake to the satisfaction of our souls, but we will partake in a community of love because partaking of Christ, the one bread, to the satisfaction of our souls unites us to the other members of his body and places upon us the responsibility that we have to one another to love, to edify to show hospitality, to serve one another, to lay aside malice and envy and hypocrisy and deceit and to love one another earnestly with a pure heart to the end. Lord, may, may our expectation of Christ's return that we celebrate here in the Lord's Supper renew our hope once again so that together we may love one another. And we ask these things in Christ's name.